the bigger picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. You join us for The Bigger Picture, where I'm talking to political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tendency uh, blog. Mike, uh, it was quite often in the summer, we would often, in the old days, have nothing to talk about. Uh, <laughs> it was silly season. Well, you may say it's still silly season, but there's certainly a plenty to talk about. And we ought really, I suppose, to discuss uh, the so-called Freedom Day. Uh, which happened just a few days before we record this. But is it indeed Freedom Day at all? Well, <laughs> I, I'm, I don't like the label Freedom Day, Simon. It's, it's a personal, it's a personal right. preference. I, I fully understand that, that for many people, the restrictions of the lockdown have been constraining. And I think we can all remember the the... the the first one last year where we were only allowed out once a day to exercise. Mm. And for some of us, that meant living in um, quite confined spaces. For other people, it meant worrying about work and it meant just uh, long periods of time and stresses on mental health. So I think then we could talk about there being a lack of freedom. Now that we are able to be out side and moving around again and have been arguably since the end of last year we haven't had a lockdown as restrictive as the first one that isn't to say that we haven't had freedoms impinged upon but if you look at how countries like china for example have dealt with the pandemic um even initially in wuhan sort of mass lockdown to more more totalitarian I, I, approach i hope we're not using well. totalitarian china as the benchmark by no. which our freedom no uh, that would be a very sad state of affairs no but i i think it's important to think to, to put things in perspective i think that on the most libertarian aspect of this that some of the the, the people complain about wearing masks as an infringement freedom has gone too far whereas i think actually things like working from home and not being able to only be able to go out certain times of day and having to stay inside that that is an impingement mm. on choice and also i think most notably distancing as well specifying how we conduct our lives in terms of you know the government dictating romantic relationship attachments and people being fined for walking around <laughs> reservoirs yes. with coffees yes, but i yes. think we're, but i think my point is we're past that peak now i think so to say freedom day for me the go- the government i think put this message out there for the, the, the simple necessity of trying to have a good news story whereas, whereas an actual fact a more sensible thing would have been a gentle relaxation of the more obvious measures so say relaxing social distancing down removing mm. mandatory um, requirements of wearing masks step by step because yes what we don't want to happen and what nobody wants to happen, what nobody is arguing for, is that the restriction should be permanent. Nobody wants to live under these kind of more constrained times forever. But my worry is that the infection rate is risen dramatically. And I think that as the government has done before, they've prioritised things like eat out to help out, which again came about, I think, through very, you know, much a desire to reopen the economy, but also to make a big splash. Whereas actually steadier progress means that we can get our freedoms back and be sure we can keep them back as well. So having a freedom day on the one hand, I think plays into the hands of, an overzealous interpretation of how restrictive the measures are at the moment, but also risks um, 
putting us on the unsustainable footing, meaning we'll have to lock down again, which psychologically for most people isn't something we can really yeah. tolerate. But we were told, of course, that the vaccines were going to be our route to freedom. But despite the fact that everybody who is remotely vulnerable has now been offered the vaccine and the vast majority have actually been double jabbed, it doesn't seem to have led to that at all. No. And this was the understanding which we had at the start of the year, mm. right? The, the, the compact which the Prime Minister and the then Health Secretary made with the nation was that the UK had a broadly effective vaccine candidate, then it had two, then it had three that were rapidly rolled out uh, across a first dose basis. The whole strategy the government pursued, including extending the time frame, was to maximise the first jabs to reduce the, the, the death rate, which has done, to reduce the hospitalisation rate, which also has fallen. And if you look at any graph comparing the second wave of the virus to the third wave, which we are currently in, the infection rates have gone up. Yes, similar numbers per 100,000, but the death rates are tenth of what they were, sometimes a fifteenth as well. Yes, the vaccinations are preventing serious illness and death. Now, there are still people who are anecdotally double-jabbed and getting the virus, that was always the possibility. The, the, there are new variants of this virus all the time emerging. The vaccines are not 100% effective even against the variants that we know. But the serious risk to people's lives and health appears now to have passed for the moment. It may change. Obviously, none, mm. none, of, none of us has a crystal ball. But that was the compact the government made with the people back in January. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't help feeling that while... Uh, clearly we are freer than we have been at some point in the past during the pandemic. I mean, think back to last uh, summer and, you know, it was possible to travel abroad. I remember you know, I went to Britain. The only real restrictions, you had to wear a mask in the airport, you had to wear a mask on the plane. Apart from that, it wasn't really, and you fill out a few forms, wasn't that much different than this year. Um, but, you know, clearly people are desperate to get away. It's almost impossible to find anywhere in the UK now to stay, as I know, uh, to my cost. Um, Last year, we're in the middle of a self-evident pandemic. Um, this year, many scientists are saying, well, it's now epidemic and it's one of many diseases we just have to live with. We've heard that from various government ministers that they sometimes get slapped down for saying it. Why is it all so much more difficult now after all the vaccinations um, and after the pressure on the NHS has been reduced? I mean, we are in the summer after all and it is a seasonal disease i just don't quite understand it. it's as if the government is still making everything up on the hoof now you can understand that back in march 2020 and for several months afterwards you know no governments really quite understood what it was that they were actually looking at but it just seems utterly bonkers now i mean what degree of trust can there still be between the government and the populace who after all have given up quite a lot to fight the this blasted disease when the government keeps changing its mind. I mean, you know, if you do a list of broken promises, clearly early on, you can understand they don't know what they're dealing with. Previous plans for a pandemic quite clearly were totally wrong because they were based on flu and nothing much else. But, you know, that's what is that, Mike, 16, 17 months ago? Yes. And we are. Is there actually a now. plan or are they really just making it up? Or is the well, plan sitting to the last person who spoke to him? Well, well. We'll touch on this aspect a lot when we come to the uh, what, in my opinion, has been one of the most explosive stories of the week with the Cummings interview mm -hmm. later. But 
look, there to answer your question, no, I don't believe there is a plan. I think the government spread the government is in the position it didn't because it's spread better on vaccines, but also it's benefiting from the fact that the public are broadly still supportive of the lockdown measures remaining in place. And I think that says a lot about people's not just state of minds, but also a desire to preserve life as well, which is no matter how much we chafe at the restrictions, it's it's easy to understand why people want to keep well, I, I agree, except, except, of course, you have to now look at the fact that flu is actually now accounting for far more deaths than COVID. We're all used to flu, but that doesn't actually mean that we shouldn't mourn the fact that far more people are dying of flu and um, other um, respiratory diseases. The fact that NHS resting, waiting lists are just going, I mean, beyond belief. If you actually fall ill now, then, you know, woe betide you trying to get any sort of uh, treatment at all out of the NHS. Surely the point has passed when we should be treating COVID as seriously as the government seems to. It is, it is formulating policy for COVID as if there are no other problems in the world but that. It is utterly bizarre. I think at the moment it's fair to say. So yesterday, the day before we record this, the, the daily seven-day average for infections was forty, just under 43,000 in the United Kingdom. Yes. Deaths were 63 yes. per and day. We te- we so we're finding perhaps more infections than we would have done and before. That's one of the problems, of course. So, so, so there's a question. Are people, are people getting the virus and are they dying with it in the same numbers? No. That, to me, suggests the vaccine rollout has been effective. What we will see, of course, as restrictions relax, as people mix more in society, as children go back to school, as people mm. go back to offices, mm. as we re-emerge as a society, infection rates will rise. What we need to ask, as you say, is, is this still is this now an epidemic or a pandemic? Now, I would argue it's probably the former. I'm not, I'm not an epidemiologist. Mm. Yes. I, I, no, I feel I've said this a lot in the last year. But there are other questions here now, apart from issues arising out of COVID and the issue of basic government competence as well is coming up time and again. And in any other normal um, time, the fact that somebody who used to be a senior aide to the prime minister, his closest advisor, has gone on national television and said that he's not up to doing the job would be a career ending move but because of the status quo we find ourselves in with a labor opposition that hasn't really had a chance to make much of an impression in the last 12 months a government that has actually got the biggest um issue it faced right in terms of the vaccine rollout but is basically feeling its way through the dark mm. and then there's this question of basic competence behind the scenes as well with people pointing fingers at each other with this public inquiry that's looming on the horizon the point is that we can't have a society that's half in and half out of lockdown. We can have a society where we live with COVID and we have, you know, you can order, I, mean, I, I, can, I, can, I, can, I can hold this up now. You can order these lateral flow tests. I'm holding mm. a box in my hand as I talk right now. And these can give you an 85% accurate assessment whether you have COVID in half an hour or not. Now I've mm. taken one of these every time I go into the office. If we can get mass testing available, which we have now, an infrastructure that appears to be broadly effective after £22 billion are spent mm. on it, then I think we can relax the other lockdown restrictions gradually. Yeah. What I am worried about is the fact that we will probably have a summer of activity and have to go back into some form of lockdown in the autumn. I would rather have a gradual relaxation of the measures that is sustainable over yes. a longer period of time. Well, and we could talk endlessly as well about the predictions of, of SAGE and other scientists about how appalling uh, COVID was going to be 
every single one of which, as far as I call, has been massively pessimistic and not borne out by reality. But one probably does have to accept the, the view that flu could actually be a major problem this coming year. Mm. And also, there's, there's also a norovirus epidemic going on as well. The other thing we haven't had... Yes, I've forgotten it, that. Another piece of good and, news, and this, yes. And this is, well, this is the thing. So we there are... Let's just take an example here about other health conditions here. So the health secretary the other week said there were potentially 7 million people who hadn't come forward with di- to have health conditions diagnosed in the last 12 months, 12, 18 months because of COVID. Now, understandably, people have been putting the pandemic, but we are past that period now. And what is bizarre for me, the thing I don't quite understand is that the prime minister is still obsessed with delivering good news with actual sustainable progress mm. is what people are really looking for. What they want to feel is confident in re-emerging to society. And unfortunately, it doesn't bear up the fact that the opinion polling says that three quarters of people still say cautious about going to say it's like a mass public event, for example. Even when we had the England um, uh, football final uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was still only a half capacity at Wembley for that. There's 60,000 people. Mm. There's no point in lifting restrictions if people don't feel comfortable going back and doing things, which is why a gradual phasing out would be a smarter move to allow people to build their confidence back up. There will always be people, and I think probably you and I fall into this category, who are prepared to throw caution to the wind and to go out there and accept the risk. But I think we have to accept we are in a minority in this, and the government has to read the tea leaves carefully and actually gradually ease things off, whereas whereas before it seems determined to end furlough too quickly, to get things back to normal, just to move on. Looking back, what I, I'm boggling, the mind is boggling as to what they actually want to do and crack on with because their 2019 manifesto was largely about Brexit. And now we're finding that that, you know, they want to, they want to rewrite yes. the, um, the, the online trading rules. So what do, they, what do they want to crack on with? They don't seem to know what they're doing in anything at the moment. Yep. Yeah, I, I wish I could disagree with you. But <laughs> yeah, the Prime Minister's chief of staff lives in our road. I saw him the other day. I was tempted just to stop and just ask. And I thought, well, what's the point? I mean, either either he either he will be terribly introduced if he never is and reveal they don't know what they're doing, or, or he's going to give me some sort of platitude. But that's the trouble. I just I seem to have lost utter confidence in their ability to do anything, frankly. Anyway, on that wonderful note, we're going to, well, I was going to say change topic, but it's sort of more of the same back in a moment. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. I'm in conversation for The Bigger Picture with political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Now, there have been many neologisms uh, over the last 18 months, uh, and one of my least favourite, I have to say, is pandemic. But it actually describes something, you know, fairly extraordinary. I mean, you're now reading that on top of the existing shortage of lorry drivers, because so many people have actually uh, been pinged who are supposed to be delivering food to supermarkets, that we're now seeing empty shelves. People are getting worried. And of course, as soon as you see one report of empty shelves, people go off and panic buying. We've told that petrol stations in some places are running out of petrol. Uh, Many employers are already saying that, you know, enough trouble coping with the existing regulations, which are let's say, fairly wishy-washy at times anyway, trouble interpreting them. But now, because so many of their staff are being pinged, um, they're finding it very difficult to keep going. 
Um, I can't remember what the number is of the number of people who are currently not permitted to go to work but have self to self-isolate because they've been pinned. <laughs> and this despite the fact that I keep reading lots of people have actually um, uh, deleted the app because they can't stand it, including, we're told, quite a lot of dedicated staff in the NHS mm -hmm. who are just getting pinged so often that they thought this is just ridiculous. So we've got a relatively small proportion of the population who are being told to stay home and isolate, and the rest are just making sure they don't get any pings at all. Yes, yeah, so more than nearly 620,000 people were sent an alert in the last week. It's a 17% increase on the previous week. Now, we're looking at... So, what is one more thing? And we're also told, because it used Bluetooth, you could be at home and not have seen anybody and still be pinged because it might go through the wall from your neighbour. Yes. And... Uh, <laughs> you know, once you hear something like that, you think, just don't trust the system at all. If there was competence, I, I would be more confident. But this just <laughs> seems ludicrous. I mean... Sorry, yeah. I interrupted. No, Mike. no, no, it's, no, it's all right. Um, so, as I said, six hundred twenty thousand people um have been pinged in the last week. Now, on the sixteenth of August, anyone who's received two jabs and who's pinged by the app um as a close contact will not need to self isolate. Now, and the app alert is an only advisory. If you get a call from the NHS test and trace team, yes, it is enforceable by law for you to self isolate. And again. It seems to be app alerts have risen dramatically in the um, and I think it's partly to do with that people have been out and about again. It's also partly to do with the fact that the sensitivity of the app has been discussed. Yes. Um, I think one person closely involved in the process has acknowledged that it, it doesn't work on many levels. And it's <laughs> I think given it was this is one of Matt Hancock's um pet projects when he was in yes. there what what do you i mean you you've got quite an in on the civil service what do you think is actually happening here because i mean the test and trace since the beginning has been incredibly expensive mostly criticized for not doing what he did why are they still persevering with it do you think given that it now seems to be creating a shortage of fuel employees even food I mean, if it's threatening the food supply as many of the food chains are warning i mean really that is something incredibly serious but do, do we get the impression that there are you know top level meetings taking place to solve this i don't get that impression at all i just assume they're just blundering on i think this all this all stems from a lack of leadership at the top of the yeah. um <laughs> the top of the system yeah. and the top of the system by somebody who's having who's been pinged and is having to isolate although so of course they tried doing it a different way to begin with until they realized people might be angry so as we're talking, we're expecting the government to publish a list of those who will be exempt from self-isolation if they're fully vaccinated. Mm. Now, the, the government has rushed this through. Now, it's not just to say you've mentioned things like obviously food, fuel, um, bin collection, but also there's things like the early years sectors as well. I do a lot of work with, with people in that space in, in another role. Yeah. And things like you can't get nursery workers going in in now and you know if you can't get childcare, can you go to yes. work that that oh of course yes and the, the number of children who are forced to leave school Absolutely. at all all ages not just early years which is creates so many mm. problems for the parents not of course those sort of parents who are wealthy enough to have massive houses with big gardens and probably lots of people looking after their children for them there may be other things at um causing pressures on supply shortages as well. There could, for example, be a shortage of lorry drivers due to Brexit and the yep. pandemic as well. Which was existing, you know. yeah, yeah. So there are, there's a sort of catalogue of problems that are coming together as well. So we've also got to bear in mind the weather too. People are wanting to purchase barbecue things as well. Yes. 
Um, yes. Supermarket fridge freeze is not built to cope with high temperatures. A lot of food has to go as well. Ultimately, I think we have to remember that our food supply chain is incredibly resilient. In fact, someone I went to university with works for one of the major supermarkets and they uh, were awarded an MBE for their work they've done mm. on the IT resilience infrastructure as well. So for people listening, it's very important. Do not panic about this. We are not going to run out of food. In fact, the only thing that will happen is if we do end up panic buying is if we will probably increase the shortages as it were. Exactly. Well, as with Luro, which is very odd because it's not just the Brit- Britons, is it? Every country in the world at some stage went through a Luro shortage. But in Britain, we are apparently self-sufficient in the stuff anyway. So there was never a particular problem with Luro's, except I'm, when people panic buy. I'm concerned about the effect to essential public services, public transport. Yes. Sadiq Khan in London's highlighted the problems that could face TfL. Dozens of councils across England have been forced to suspend their bin collections. The local yes. government um, association has pointed out that COVID rates have increased, which means many have had to prioritise services for the most vulnerable. And of course, again, we come back to a shortage of HGV drivers. So a lot of these problems are interconnecting it. And some of them actually they are to do mm. with the, the rather bungled handling of leaving the European Union last year. So yes. for Boris Johnson's government, this is a week, I, I, I think I said this a while ago, where the chickens would all come home to roost. And it feels like this might be that week, Simon. Well, maybe, yeah. And add into that what you said in the earlier part of the programme, of course, where the actual um, effect of COVID is so much less on the population now than it was last summer. We actually managed to avoid all these problems last summer we when did. things were far more serious. They were. And also, I think there was that greater sense of relief for people from getting out as well. But what the government didn't make clear at that time was that sort of relaxation was going to be temporary. The the, the compact that was made at the start of the year, and it is a promise that Prime Minister should keep, that the vaccine rollout would come with the freedoms being rolled back, is one that he has, to his credit, stuck to. But what we haven't had is the messaging to build confidence among the population that they can go out and live their lives now. And also to a certain extent, we're left with this sort of white elephant of a £22 billion test and trace system. The government seems determined to prove it was worth the value. But yes. also... A lot of its elephants appear to be white. I mean, one can lump in you know, a lot of things like HS2, almost any project. Once you put a billion in front of it, you can probably multiply by 10 the amount it first cost and the ability of whatever thing it is to do the job you set it to do in the beginning nothing seems to work anymore and the absurdity as well of the government spending 22 billion on test and trace but then trying to cut the aid budget by tens of millions of pounds to cut to cover that is yeah. is also obscene and not, you know we, we had the other week um billionaires like bill and melinda gates putting in money so the uk can make up the 0.2 percent shortfall in our gni um <laughs> aid commitment yes. as well and, and and as it looks as if inflation is probably returning and there may have to be rises in interest rates soon well, the government has now acquired so much debt this is going to be an incredible problem we're going to find government budgets cut absolutely everywhere in order to pay debt interest and also, from a from a monetary policy perspective we must remember that an, an, that we've never had such a high stock of debt that's been held by sort of the bank of england before which means yeah. that the term if it was government issued yeah. debt it would have a lifespan of say 10 years Debt that's bought up by the bank through quantitative easing has a lifetime of about a tenth of that, about a year or so, and it matures much quicker, which means it then has to be found to be funded again. And we did have a problem last year. Yeah, essentially what we are doing is what Zimbabwe did. Mm. And we had a problem printing money again, and we had this problem last year when the government went to the money markets to try and raise some capital, and it couldn't. So we are increasingly reliant on... um, the Bank of England buying up UK government gilts. Now, as long as we can 
every major Western economy can continue to service the deficits that we're running. And the same true goes for Joe Biden's massive spending splurges he's embarking on, which I think have surprised many people, given mm. his sort of the position he ran on as a moderate, given he's gone on such a progressive Keynesian bent in that way. If we can't service that debt along, and then we're all in a lot of trouble. Here we are. Yes. Oh, this is a cheerful, 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 cheerful interview. Um, let us turn to a different subject, though. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm Simon Rose in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tennessee blog. Now, I know, Mike, you want to get to, to Dominic Cummings, a man who, of course, was being, ex- uh, well, I can't remember the word, how do you feel it, but vilified from uh, all quarters last Communicated, summer. yeah. <laughs> for for uh, his extraordinary uh, driving outing to test his eyesight to Barnard Castle. Um, but now, of course, it, it's spilling the beans on... Um, working with the Prime Minister. So what's the latest? Well, Dominic Cummings gave what I think was would probably be in normal times one of the most extraordinary political interviews that I've ever seen. Now, the long-form political interview has been largely dying out, but you've seen with Prince Andrew, you've seen with things like Boris Johnson and Andrew Neil during the election campaigns, and you've seen with uh, the Dominic Cummings interview this week, that allowing these people time to talk and time to breathe in the same way that we do with podcasts and discussing things mm. really is the best way to explore and open up issues in a way that sort of the breathless mainstream media coverage doesn't really do anymore. And the BBC interview is available in three parts. I recommend listening to it on BBC Sounds. Each part has context added in. Um, and so it, it not only provides a framing device for the last sort of four or five years of British politics, arguably the, the, the time since 2010, but also I think exposes the weaknesses of the Conservative Party as a governing force within Britain, certainly since the Cameron government came back in in 2010. But also you're hearing from a man who's who's very much been an outsider in Westminster, somebody who isn't part of the party system and has been able to further his own agenda. So yes, we're hearing a bias account. Yes, we're hearing the account of someone who is going to be jilted and jaded by the fact that he thought he had this opportunity to further his agenda. And as someone who is clearly possessed of a massive amount of hubris, but that doesn't mean that some parts of his analysis about what is wrong with Boris Johnson's abilities are not correct. And I think, bear in mind that the fact Boris Johnson chose to hire this person into government, he has full discretion over who works for him. Mm. And Dominic Cummings has now turned around and said, he's not worth the, the paper he's written on. And we saw him as a means to an end. It says a lot about what is wrong with our political system. The fact that it's still largely governed by a narrowing, a narrow clique, but also the need for elected politicians to broaden the circles of people who they rely upon beyond um, the North London circle, which Dominic Cummings still comes from. Mm. Uh, I didn't actually watch it. I was just getting too depressed to, watch this sort of stuff that being told that essentially the government is even more incompetent than you actually assume that they were to begin with i find is just rather depressing i don't want depressing news i want to be able to enjoy the the summer i want life at least to return to some semblance of a normal or at least i want to think that i understand why decisions are being made the way they are but i don't get the impression that that is the case do you i'm just mystified some days when i open the paper at what i read I think in terms of what's happening at the centre of government as well, when Dominic Cummings said, you know, 
he quoted Boris Johnson saying he did not have a plan. You mm. said that at the top of the item here. And to hear that from a man who was his closest advisor, the bit I find difficult to swallow with this is that is that that, that we should be maligning Boris Johnson's wife for trying to steady the ship there as well. The fact that, you know, we have people around the Prime Minister who, are, who, if we assume that he has this sort of Trumpian reputation for pinballing all over the place or being a shopping trolley, then there, if there are people around him trying to steady the ship, the civil service, his partner, then I, yeah. I view that as a good thing. And now I'm not suggesting that, that Boris Johnson shouldn't be held accountable for his actions. And I, I fully agree with Mr Cummings on one fact that he is not fit to be Prime Minister. I've often held that view of Boris Johnson. I've held it before he became Prime Minister. I held it <laughs> hold it long after he's left Downing Street. But what he has, what we have to accept is that unless the Conservative Party decides to defenestrate their leader, mm. he is the man running the country for now. So Dominic Cummings' talk about constructing alternative entities to try and bring down the government, try to bring down the system, yes, may appeal to some people on a subversive level as well, but until we're out of this situation pointing the finger at his wife or anyone else mm. around the table is not going to be better. If it, what we need to do this week is to accept the fact that we have had our leaders flaws exposed, but what we didn't hear was a solution for how to get out of the situation. And, and also we must remember that with Dominic Cummings as well, he has only one worldview, which is his own. He doesn't embrace other ones. He has a very firm belief in the systemic, failures of the british state now some may agree with this analysis i personally don't i do a lot of work for our government i mm. see the i see the, the 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 effectiveness of the system i see its disadvantages as well but i also believe that we have a system that by and large i think is the best of all possible worlds with a few reforms that would make it better what we have to remember with dominic cummings is that he he offers a very nebulous um system that's entirely focused on some sort of obscure text he might have read in his early 20s mm. as well so we can't rely on him for that true so in more normal times you think this interview would have had a far greater effect do you think I it's mean, actually going to have any effect now or uh, is it just just one more piece of evidence i think it's one of these things that given the extraordinary roller coaster we've been on i don't think the bbc would have given it a prime time spot if it wasn't worth hearing from him and you know he is in the room and i think he was right in the sense when he said the public inquiry I honestly think the COVID inquiry will be the end of Boris Johnson's premiership. I think some stuff will come out around that. I think by the time that we've got to the 2022, 2023, we'll be seeing the issues with Brexit piling up as it already are with the government saying it has to redraw the, um, the, 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 the trade agreement. I, I know the sectors like fishing, for example, that were totemic Brexit sectors are very unhappy with the settlement they received in that. They haven't got the support means that they feel they need. It's, it's difficult to see who people will be realising the Prime Minister's levelling up agenda doesn't amount to anything because of the sheer vacuousness of it, but also the fact that things like Northern Powerhouse Rail, which could have been delivered, which could have been splurged upon by the Chancellor with record low borrowing, that we'll do, we'll do a focused infrastructure spend as we come out mm. of this, doing what Biden is essentially doing in America and pushing through massive stimulus packages on that side as well. Now, I'm not saying that's what we should do. That's just one option the government could have pursued to do levelling up with big infrastructure investment as well. And at the core of it, a man who ran on a very simple slogan to get Brexit done was lumbered as he sees it with a pandemic and is unsure of which way to turn now. Now, it could be that some leaders like Tony Blair, they grow into office, they become more sure of themselves. Mm. But the longer Boris Johnson appears to be behind the door of Downing Street, 
the more uncertain he becomes. And if somebody who he once regarded as his closest advisor is willing to go on the record and say that, we should neither ignore it, nor should we forget it, nor should we forgive it. Yes, of course, the other bizarre thing this week is the, the realisation that Tony Blair is the one who's talking lots of sense at the moment. Um, just how how things how things have changed, Mike. Uh, extraordinary. I'm sure when we talk again in a fortnight's time, there'll be plenty more that's extraordinary to discuss. But I have been in conversation with Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. The bigger picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.